Church is a community and movement, a fellowship of discovery. We desire to love well and serve often, while together we explore the adventurous love story of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and grab a seat. You know, it's such a shame we don't have gifted musicians and vocalists. I mean, it's just a bummer. Um... Anyway, my name is Mike. I want to welcome you to our community, particularly if you're new. Hello, or your name is Sammy. Hello! Um, I'm Mike. This is Susie. Hi. We, we are your guides into the Bible this morning. Oh, yes. And I don't know whether you know this, but Christmas is upon us, whether we would wish it or not. It is upon us in a couple of days. So we're going to turn our attention to the Christmas story. Not surprisingly, we're starting a series of conversations uh, that's called For, what is it? For All the People. And it comes from this great verse in um, the book of Luke where the angels uh, appear to shepherds and, um, and say, angels said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for... All the people. Now, the reason that little tag was added is that the word good news there, euangelion, is a word that the Roman Empire Wait, what was that used. Word? What? What was that word? Euangelion. Sorry. Just never. I mean, you know, it's, it's a good yeah, word. Yeah, it's a good word. <laughs> I mean, yes. Yes, we considered naming our daughter that, but we thought maybe, maybe not. Anyway, euangelion is this, it was a political word before it became a Christian word. And the Caesars, whenever the Caesars had good news, this was the word they would use. If one of the Caesars came into power or they won a great victory or there was an heir that was born, it was euangelion to the, to the Roman world. The problem was Roman good news was only good news to Romans. This was going to be good news for everybody. And so we want to explore a little bit of the for everyone-ness of the good news. And to do that, we're going to begin in Matthew chapter 1, the very first page of the New Testament, one of the four biographies of Jesus. And it begins, you know, in genealogies, let's be honest, no one reads these, right? We skip this part to get to the good stuff. But there's some good stuff here. And so Matthew begins with, with a little punch, like this is a great sort of topic sentence. This is the origin story of Jesus the Christ the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, son of David is in reference to a promise in 2 Samuel given to David, where God says to David, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. And, um, and this is indeed the idea that there would become a messianic figure through the house of David is what it, it is that's being referred to when Matthew says the son of David, but also the son of Abraham. This goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 12. I will bless those who bless you, God says to Abram. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So in some sense, this is where the Christmas story begins, correct? Is the idea that God is going to do something someday to set the world back to rights, to the way God originally intended it. To be, And so when Matthew starts with a sort of punchy like, hey, here's the origin story of Jesus the Messiah, son of David, son of Abraham, you've encapsulated the entire Old Testament. You cannot separate Jesus from his Jewishness. He comes as the fulfillment of the Jewish story up until that point. And then 
as was very custom in the lineage of kings, you would begin a genealogy. And genealogies were very loose. Like, the last thing you do with biblical genealogies is trace them back to figure out how old the earth is, okay? Because genealogies were not exhaustive. You skipped lots of people. You would just hit the high points or the low points, depending. All right? So Matthew has an agenda with this genealogy. There are three sections of 14 names, and he's doing this because... The, the numerical equivalent of the word David in Hebrew is 14. He's doing all sorts of incredible things with this stuff. It's very stylized, very literary. But there's some stuff buried in here that we want to explore a bit this morning. So let's kick it off. Boom, here we go, ladies and gentlemen. Are you ready? Abraham, the father of Isaac. He did have many sons, yes. But we're just talking about one right now. And Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Susie's son is named Judah. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah. And then there's this weird insertion. Whose mother was Tamar? Now, does that interrupt the flow we got going? Son of, son of, son of. Whose mother was Tamar? It's just like, and, and when you look at ancient genealogies, women almost were never included. So, oh, okay, well, that must just be kind of an unusual circumstance. We'll just keep reading and, you know, make sure we're getting all the guys named. Perez, the father of Hezron. Oh, go back, Sarah. You're so good. You're so good. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, and then boom, whose mother was Rahab? Okay, well, this is becoming a pattern, so there's an agenda here. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Oh, all right, so something's happening. This is not a normal genealogy. Obed, the father of Jesse, Jesse, the father of David, David, the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife, and who do we know her as? Bathsheba, Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, great name. And then you go all the way down to the end of the genealogy, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus called the Christ. Now, amen. Now, what's fascinating is, and I've tried to make fun of it, of course, what's fascinating is there, there, you have these interruptions, five names of women who are included in the genealogy of King Jesus, right? You start with this epic son of David, son of Abraham, and you're going into what you think is just a normal genealogy. Bam, 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 dude, 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 whose mother was, whose mother was, whose mother was, whose mother was, whose mother was. Totally, totally uncommon. And, and Matthew is doing this to make a point, and it's that point we want to really look at. So we're going to look at four of the names this morning. And uh, we'll look at Mary next week. This is going to be a couple of disclaimers. Number one, there are some mature themes in the text that we're going to read. I'm not going to add much to those texts, and if I do, I will use words that are very creative. Um, but the Bible is the Bible, and this is in there. And then secondly, there's a lot of reading that we're going to do. 
So to do that, I brought in our expert Bible reader. She is more than that, of course. She is a pastor and elder in our church, all those sorts of things. But Susie is going to read the stories of these women because in a genealogy, the genealogy isn't a list of names, it's a list of stories. And, and these names, you would have had stories attached to them. So we want to immerse ourselves in the stories before we dive in to why it is that they were included. So we are going to start with Tamar. Now this one requires a bit of setup, all right? Judah had at least three sons. Ur, we think it is, Onan, and Shelah, all right? Ur, winner that he is, um, marries, he is not a winner at all in the story, he marries a woman named Tamar, who is a Canaanite, right? So he's already violating the idea that they were supposed to marry within kind of the Jewish identity. He marries a woman named Tamar, but he's evil, and so he dies pretty early in the story. Now, here's where it gets a little funky. There is, there is a law that's commanded later, but practiced during this time, called leveret marriage. If you had an older brother who died and was married, the next older brother would marry the widow of the older brother, and they would have children, and then the children, the, especially the oldest one, would receive the inheritance and the name of the dead older brother so that his name and his inheritance would continue on. Does that make sense? So this was something that was, because bloodlines mattered so much and land mattered so much, this was something uh, that was covenantally required. So Ur dies uh, because he was evil, we're told. Onan then marries Tamar but refuses to get her pregnant. And he does that because he does not want to share the inheritance of his older brother. And so he dies. God actively smites Onan. All right? Now Judah is like, well, I got one more, but the older two have died. So let's just send Tamar back to her father. And that's where we pick up the story. In Genesis 38, verse 11. Judah then said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, live as a widow in your father's household until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought he may die too, just like his brothers, so Tamar went to live in her father's household. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah to the men who were shearing his sheep, and his friend, Hira, the Adullamite, went with him. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance to Anaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that, though Shelah had now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute for she had covered her face. Not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, come now, let me sleep with you. Hannah, I'll explain this later. <clears throat> They're not just resting, okay? I just wanna clarify. <laughs> I'm filtering. <laughs> and, <laughs> and what will you give me to sleep with you, she asked. I'll send you a young goat from my flock, he said. 
Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it, she asked. He said, what pledge should I give you? Your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand, she answered. So he gave them to her and slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. After she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son, Shelah. And he did not sleep with her again. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. As she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand. So the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on his wrist and said, this one came out first. But when he drew back his hand, his brother came out and she said, so this is how you've broken out. And he was named Perez. Then his brother who had the scarlet thread on his wrist came out and he was named Zerah. And that is why we don't read the Old Testament, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> right there. Good grief. The kids in Sunday school are not going to Yeah, yeah, this, yeah, seriously. <laughs> so so what's, what's fascinating here is I was always told that Tamar was the one that was the, the scandalous one. But it's actually Judah who's the big sinner. Because the way it worked back in the day, women were considered property, and not at all. This was a good thing, not at all. And um, you were either the property of your father or the property of your husband. All right? And so once you left your father's house, you were now the responsibility of your husband's family. So first thing that Judah does, who does he blame for the sin of his two evil sons? He blames who? Yeah, he blames her, right? Which that never happens today, correct? Women never get blamed for the sin of men today. Slightly political point there. But um, back, back then, of course, well, yeah, I mean, he didn't acknowledge the sin of his own kid, so it must be her that's the issue. And he has a third son, and he's like, ah, maybe she's the problem. So go wear widow's clothing, which meant that she was in mourning publicly and could not marry another. Secondly, go back to your father's home, which means he's forsaking his responsibility to care for her. And then thirdly, he has no intention, even though he said otherwise, of allowing Tamar to marry his youngest son. So in this story, Judah is the sinner. Tamar, her story's told because she exposed his shame. She was full of chutzpah, and cunning. I know, thank you. I've, I'm working on <laughs> And so it's just fascinating. When Matthew sat down to write the royal lineage of Jesus the Messiah, he had to mention Judah, but he couldn't do that without mentioning Tamar, the one who was more righteous than he. Oof. All right, but that's not the only name we encounter. Soon we encounter Rahab. 
the Israelites had been brought to the promised land. And remember, famously, 12 spies went in. 10 came back and said, there's no way we can take these guys. We're toast. Two came back and said, no, God's with us. What? Come on. The 10 won. They didn't go in. God had them wander for 40 years until that generation died off. Now they're back. They send two spies into the land. And these two spies meet a woman named Rahab. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent his message to Rahab, bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, yes, the men came to me, but I didn't know who, who they had, where they had come from. She lied? At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You, you may catch up with them. But she had taken them to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax that she had laid out on the roof. She lied? So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We've heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea, and when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sion and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, who you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Now, then please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I've shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us this land. So she let them down by a rope through the window, for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. She said to them, go to the hills so the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourself there three days until they return, and then go on your way. So three strikes against Rahab. She's a foreigner. She's a prostitute. And she tells lies. And yet, when you get to Hebrews... And the author of Hebrews is searching for people who demonstrate the kind of faith that God is interested in. Oh yeah, her. She's a great example of that. And when Matthew is putting together a very literary and theological display of the kingship and lineage of Jesus, oh yeah, let's include her. Now, for some of us, like, yeah, 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 we know, we know, we know. God loves women too. Yes, of course. But we're trying to recapture a bit of how uncommon and odd this would seem. That as you start down the lineage of Jesus, and it's just dude after dude, there are, there are four, men, four women mentioned in the first six verses, and then it caps off with Mary. And you're just going, 
there's a point that's being made here that very often we don't recognize. Now, let's meet Ruth. Ruth is a Moabitess. Moab was despised. And if you want a really unsavory story, we haven't even, this was even worse than what we've read. Read the story of Lot and his daughters. That produced Moab. And um, so the Moabites were just despised. Ruth marries into a Jewish family during the time of the judges, and we pick up the story in chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. You want Gelion. His wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. I gave you all the hard stuff. I mean, this is, these are awful. It's okay. I, I'm Middle Eastern. I have it. <laughs> well done. Now, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. And they had lived there about 10 years. Both Malon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left with her two sons and her, without her two sons and her husband. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. But Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. In the ancient world, the, the most vulnerable people were women who were not married and no longer living with their fathers. So Naomi is about as destitute. She lost both of her sons, and she lost her husband. And so naturally, out of concern for her daughters-in-law, she says, go find other family." So when Ruth says, or sings, where you go, I go, where you stay, I stay, where move, I move. Like, like I said, we have gifted musicians and vocalists. But this declaration was a huge pledge of fidelity to a woman who could offer her nothing. In fact, what Ruth was taking on was the responsibility to care for this older woman. When they arrive back in Israel, Ruth does the very hard and dangerous work of gleaning. Gleaning was a practice in ancient Israel where you would leave, you would not harvest the fringes of your field, and the destitute could come and follow along the harvesters and pick up the scraps or at the, or at the edges of the field, and that way feed themselves. She there meets a man named Boaz. Boaz is a relative, a distant relative, who is something called a kinsman redeemer. It means that he is related to them and, ha and is able to purchase them out of their destitution and restore, to th and restore them back into their family community. To see that happen, Naomi hatches a bit of a plot, and we pick up that story in Ruth 3. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, 
I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Now Boaz, with those women you've worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight, he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you're there until he's finished eating and drinking. <laughs> when he lies down, note the place where he's lying, then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. Just for the record, uncovering his feet is more than uncovering his feet. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. A woman lying at his feet? Who are you, he asked. I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are the guard, a guardian redeemer of our family. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You've not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you're a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good. Let him redeem you. But if he's not willing, as, sure, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who to this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Are we seeing a theme in some of these? Right? I mean, here is a, a very courageous young woman who follows her mother-in-law. They're not ethnically at all related. And they show up to Israel. She provides for him. Um, she provides for her mother-in-law, excuse me, Naomi, and she comes across this guy, Boaz. And then there's this episode on the thre threshing floor. In essence, she asks him to marry her, to take, to be a, be, to take her into his family. He, of course, accepts. But there's this great little line in um, the genealogy that explains perhaps, yes, oh, who is it? You can't tell me? Oh, man, now I want to know even more. But there's this great line, if you want to throw that in Matthew. Where did Boaz learn such kindness? Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was what? Isn't that interesting? So Boaz learned the kindness and grace of God 
through his mother, Rahab, and then becomes this total amazing blessing to these two destitute women. And that whole story gets woven in to the genealogy of the king. One last one. I know this is a lot of text and a lot of story. One last one. You've got it. And then we'll draw some of these threads together. This is Bathsheba. She's not even mentioned by name in the genealogy. She doesn't even have to be. This is such a notorious period in Israel's history. And, um, and so we'll, we'll start in 2 Samuel and read a bit of her story. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Reba, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I'm pregnant. Now this, it doesn't sound like it in English, but Bathsheba had no choice in this. When he sends messengers to get her, it's not like she's agreeing, okay? So there, there was, I mean, when you study the power that Israelite kings had during this time, and, and often Bathsheba is portrayed as somebody who was seducing David, that is not how the story would have been read culturally, not even remotely. This is a story about David's sin, not Bathsheba. And David is so ungodly in this moment that he actually brings her wife home from, her husband, excuse me, home from the war and tries to get him drunk so that he'll spend quality time um, with uh, Bathsheba. And then they'll think the kid is theirs. That doesn't happen because Uriah is a righteous man. And so David then does this. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So when Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Excellent. Thank you, Susie. Thank you, Susie. So when we say that this is good news of great joy for all the people, this is what we mean. An abused widow, a foreign sinner, a destitute outsider, and an exploited wife. Of all the stories that you could tell, and all the people you could point to, when you tell the story of Jesus the King, Matthew made sure 
that these were the stories that were included. Genealogies back in the day, they weren't just um, DNA tests. You know how we do our DNA test to find out what, you know, what I am and what I'm not. For them, every name, as we said, was a story, and this, you would tell stories. So who am I? Well, you'd answer that by talking about all your ancestors. That's who I am. So if you're asking, who is Jesus of Nazareth? The way you answer that is you tell everyone about his ancestors. And when Matthew makes a deliberate, deliberate attempt, and in a scandalous attempt, you can look at ancient genealogies, and there aren't women mentioned. When he makes this deliberate attempt to call attention to the mothers of some of the men who are listed, he is shouting to us in a culturally relevant way that part of the message of the Christmas story and the coming of Christ is the reversal of the status of women in that world and in today. Because these women, see, here's the big problem. So big point number one, Let's, before we go to the problem, big point number one is this. The Christmas story is a story that's intended to say that there is no past, no resume, no mistake, no screw-up big enough that excludes you from the work of God in the world. And that the story and the circle of the people that God loves has always been bigger than the circle the church draws. And if these aren't the stories that are esteemed in the people of God, then we're not doing it right. If it's just the nice religious resumes, then, then we've, we've messed it up somewhere along the line. The grace of Jesus is meant to be this disturbing and scandalous. So that's big point number one. If you're here and you've got a past, welcome to the club, my friends. God is for you, with you, and where Jesus comes from is an expression of who he comes for. Right? Second thing. As a man, I have always been taught that the reason these women were included is because they were sinful. These are the scandalous women. And oh, isn't it great? Susie was even telling me between services, she's actually been told, well, because God can use women like these, he can use a woman like you. Right. And of course, the story is about sinners, but we've identified the wrong ones. Judah is the sinner in the story. David is the sinner in the story. Tamar, and I know it doesn't feel this way because this is so odd and so culturally weird, but Tamar was put away and neglected by a man who had power. She had no remedy, no agency. Again, I mean, even rape and adultery in the first century, not the first century, but in ancient Near East, it, they were considered wrong not because you violated an image bearer of God, but because you took another man's property. That, it was property that we were dealing with. And so when Judah excludes her from his family, casts her to being a widow and wearing widow's garb, meaning she can't be remarried, and refusing to give her his youngest son, even though his two sons were the evil in the relationship. However disturbed you are at Tamar, that, Judah is that much more. And so I love the fact that there are heroes and villains in the genealogy. We just flip them sometimes. And the women have been described. Look at this scandal here and look at this scandal. No, no, scandal was Judah. The scandal wasn't Bathsheba. The scandal was David. 
Then you have this story of Boaz, who is the kinsman redeemer line, is the clearest explanation of what Jesus will be. And they tell that story sandwiched between two women who embody what that is. And so big point number one is, man, it's good news for everybody, no matter what a, how big a screw-up we happen to be. But the other good news is it's specifically, the Christmas story is specifically good news for women. And though we've misread these stories, these women are to be esteemed. Rahab was heroic. Tamar was heroic. Ruth was heroic. Bathsheba never got a chance to be. And so there's a sense in which when Jesus comes into the world and we're telling the story of who he is by telling the story of all the stories who've come before him in his line, these are the kind of stories that we make sure to include. And so not only, and, and obviously, I mean, without, without getting into a lot of detail, a lot of, a lot of this misteaching still goes on today where women are blamed for the sins of men. And we just want to be a community that when we read these stories, we don't read them as woke, politically correct people, but we read them taking the Bible really seriously. And when you take it seriously, this is what it's shouting at you. The point isn't the name of the men. The point of the genealogy is the five women. That's the exception and that's the point. No one's shocked Judah would be in there. He's one of the patriarchs. I just love that Matthew couldn't tell his story without telling Tamar's story too. And so, I know this is a little different for what we normally do, but I just felt um, burdened, I guess, to pray over uh, the ladies in our midst and to pray a blessing over them. Because very often, the stereotypes and the traditions that have rendered these women non-heroic are the same stereotypes and traditions still working work in the church. And so if, if uh, you're here and um, you're a young lady or an older lady or a mature lady, however you would identify yourself, uh, of age, a sage, a woman of sage and time, um, that was a spice reference. Thank you, Daniel. Come on, you get it? All right, I thought there'd be more laughter, but there was Daniel. If you're a woman, I want you to stand up, even though you are not, may not be comfortable doing that. We're all going to do it. Yep. And I want to pray a blessing over you. And I first just want to look you in the eye as a man who has inherited a church culture that very often doesn't honor and esteem you. And that spends a lot of time talking about what you can't do rather than what you can do. And a church culture that very often talks about your modesty rather than the lust of men. You've been overlooked at times and neglected and I just wanna say on the authority of God's word, God has seen your story and it is not wasted. You are utterly 
forever and absolutely necessary to the work of God in the world. And so I just want to pray. For some of you, yep, you got this and you're in touch with this. I'm not doing this for you. There are a bunch of us who've received the absolute opposite messages from the church. And as an act of repentance and fidelity to the scriptures, I just want to pray a blessing over you. If you're a fella sitting next to one of these incredible women, you can join me in this, kind of praying under your breath. But I simply, if you would, sisters, close your eyes. In the name of the Father, and in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit, mighty God, we sit in awe and in recognition of the testimony of the scriptures and the recognition, God, of the dignity and worth and value of women throughout the entire story of the Bible. And Father, my prayer for my sisters, some of whom have been abused, some of whom have been mistreated, some of whom have been neglected and forgotten, some of whom have been looked over. God, my prayer very simply is that you would draw near to them and that you would let them know that you see them. That you would bless them and that you would break the strongholds of so many of the traditions and stereotypes, so much of the teaching that just isn't of you. Father, we pray that you would unleash your spirit even in further abundance to the sisters who are standing before you that they might confidently walk in the calling they've received. And God, I pray that you would use the women in our midst to remind us and show us what you're like, to reveal your heart and your zeal and your care. And Father, for the brothers in this room, I simply want to walk in repentance for all of the ways that we have excluded and marginalized and not listened to the clear work of God in our sisters. And so God, we want to be a community that reflects the beauty and majesty of Jesus of Nazareth. And to do that, Father, we walk in the blessing and calling of the women among us. And so, Father, we rebuke the adversary and we pray that you would call forth freedom and joy because this is good news for all the people, for the Tamars and the Bathshebas and the Ruths and the Rahabs of the world. It's not good news unless it's good news for them. So, Jesus, we honor you that you welcome us all to your table and to your work in the world. In the name of our Christ, we pray, amen. You can be seated. We're gonna do what we always do at this point. We're just gonna bring the, the band up. And we're just gonna provide a backdrop for us to respond. You don't have to do any of this, but you're invited. You'll see people kind of walk around. There are these stations around the room, and there there is the bread and the cup, the Lord's table. We have some that's communion, 
or some that's COVID friendly and others that you literally gonna be weird, but you take real bread, dip it in the juice and then just eat it straight. That's available for you. We also have pieces of paper where you can just write what's on your heart, what God's doing. We esteem those pieces of paper and the stories behind them. We pray for them, we pray over them, we read them aloud. So they're so important for us. And so you're invited to that place too. But more than anything, we want to be people who look past the tinsel and the glitter and the sentimentality of the holiday to see that there is a unbelievably compelling story being told that is right in the middle of all the darkness and ugliness of our world. And when you're looking for where Jesus dwells, it's not in the bright and shiny. It's in the small, the overlooked, and the slow, and the weak. And so we just wanna be people who pay attention even in a season like this. So Father, receive our worship, we pray, for you are worthy. Thank you, we receive the bread and the cup. As people who do not deserve such grace, but we come grateful to receive it. And Father, thank you for the ways in which you invite us out of ourselves into this, into this marvelous kingdom and way of living. So to that end, God, would you bless us and receive us? Amen.